0: teaches us what it means to have the mind of Christ so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
1: Well, I don't know if you recognize it or not, but uh, every Sunday, uh, Taryn is reading the scripture passage for us. We so appreciate that. Everybody's in a generous mood. You just want to clap for everything. It's sunny out. There's no snow. I've lost weight. Oh, you guys are amazing. I wanna, I wanna try to answer a question this morning. Question is, is uh, what is the cause of church splits? What's the cause of family splits? What causes marriages to break up? What causes fights at the office, fights with neighbors? fights with your kids. What what's the cause of this? What's behind it? Well, back a few years ago, there's a an author by the name of Leslie Flynn. He wrote a book about infamous church fights. And honestly, it's it's one of the funniest books I ever read. <laughs> and uh, you'd laugh except it's it's really quite sad. There's a certain church in Dallas, Texas, and uh, they they had a huge divide and Finally, what happened is uh, they they went to they went to the courts and they filed lawsuits. Both both sides filed lawsuits against the other side, trying to kick the other side out of the church and off the premises of the church. Uh, even though this goes against the clear teaching by the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians six, well, the judge ruled that it was out of his jurisdiction. He could not rule in ecclesiastical matters, and he said he must refer the case to ecclesiastical courts. So they, the two groups, they went to their denomination and, uh, and finally uh, they, they figured out who could, got to stay in the building and who had to leave. And so the judge made the, the, the ruling and the losers withdrew and they started another church right beside the, the old church. Just in true Christian fashion, right? Oh man, I have seen that happen so many times over the years. Anyway, uh, the Dallas newspapers could not resist reporting on this story. And so they did some, a deep dive into what actually happened. And the trouble began, are you ready for this? The trouble began when at a church dinner, an elder had been served a smaller slice of ham than a child who was seated next to him. That caused the church split, caused the need to hire lawyers, go before a judge. Absolutely ridiculous. Leslie Flynn told about another story of of a church in Wales. Just 40 people, they had a split, so it's twenty about 20 against 20, something like that, almost right down the middle. And they, uh, the two groups decided they were going to both hire a pastor. So they both hired the pastors. Both pastors showed up on the same Sunday. Both both pastors were there to represent represent their groups. Well each group had their own song leader. And so one group's leader went up to the to the platform and then the other group decided, well we better send ours up at the same time. And so the two the two groups are trying to sing their hymns at exactly the same time. (laughs) This is all true. It happened in Wales. The land of revival not one revival, but many revivals. And then it came time for the pastors to preach. And they both got up and started to preach at exactly the same time. Finally, a deacon couldn't stand it. He called the police. And uh, (laughs) the police came in and told them all to shut up, something you don't expect to hear in church. They all shut up. And then finally, one of the groups decided, you know, we better have a a meeting and uh, convene a meeting to try to become friends again. Well, they got the the meeting together, but the sad news is that they broke up in a fight in, in the in the reconciliation meeting, and that was the end of that. Folks, this happens all the time. It happens all the time. We all know that. We've experienced it in our own marriages. Uh, we've experienced it in our own families. There's been people in our lives that, that we've gotten angry at. And the question is, is why does this happen? Well, the Apostle Paul is writing from a prison in Rome, and in the first First chapter, we've read about all the dangers that were on the outside, the dangers to the church, the dangers to the unity of the church and to the, and to the survival of the church and, and uh, the dangers to the preaching of the gospel. But now Paul is turning his gaze inward and saying, not only are there dangers on the outside, but there's also dangers on the inside. And the danger on the inside is, is in a nutshell, is people who refuse to imitate Jesus Christ. Did you get that? The danger on the inside of any church, any marriage, any family is when people within refuse to be like Jesus. So keep this in mind as we go along this morning. So here's Paul. He's addressed the problems on the outside. Now he's got to address the problems in the inside. And so here's what here's what the problem is. And we read about it in Philippians uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. And he says, Now I appeal to and Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement because you belong to the Lord. And I ask you, my true partner, and I'm guessing this is probably Epaphroditus or perhaps it's just the whole church. He says, help these two women, for they worked hard for me and with me in telling others the gospel. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers, whose names are written in the book of life. Now, I want you to see something, because when you hear people fighting like this and being unreasonable, the temptation is to think, well, these people are not born again. These people are probably not converted. In lots of cases, that is the truth. But in this case, these two women are both helpers for the Apostle Paul in the advancement of the gospel. In fact, Paul says that their names are actually written in the book of life. If your name is in the book of life, you have eternal life. So what do we do? What do we do when we've got this division? What do we do when there is a split? Well, Paul reminds us that we must be like Christ. So what should motivate us in being like Christ? Here's what Paul says in the very first few verses of chapter 2. He says, if, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? That's a question. And, and he's asking you and me that this morning. Is there any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Folks, understand this morning that we need to govern ourselves with godly motives. Does that make sense? Not not for our own sake, not to promote our own agenda, not, not so that we can get what we want, because that's usually what human beings do. That's how we're motivated. We're motivated by self-interest. But Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, it's a, it's a different ball game. It's a different approach to life. And he's asking the question, do you have any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is this, is this actually having an effect on you? And I've got to ask you that this morning. Is being a Christian, has this had any effect on you? Have you not been comforted by Christ's love? Have you had any fellowship together in the Spirit? And what about your heart? Is it, is it tender and compassionate? Because this is the mark of the Christian. This is what motivates us. We're motivated not by self-interest, but we're motivated by the great love of Christ. Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, be of one mind and one purpose, agreeing wholeheartedly with each other and loving each other with one mind and purpose. Well, what is this one mind and purpose? Well, we know what it is because we've just came, we just came out of chapter one where Paul tells us that we are to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our one mind and our one purpose, folks, is the gospel. Do you recognize that that's what unifies us here this morning? Hello? This is what unifies us, this is what makes us one, is that each and every one of us here today is committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our whole life is based on the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. So it's no coincidence then that in chapter one alone, The Apostle Paul mentions the term or the word gospel five times. Now, it's interesting that we're living in a day and an age when you rarely hear the word gospel in churches anymore. In fact, we don't even want to use the word gospel. We want to resort to another kind of Christianity, a Christianity where we can... We can heal ourselves and promote ourselves and get rich and be healthy and, and move ahead and get what we want to fulfill our dreams and our visions and have success and so on and so forth. Yet none of that has anything to do with the gospel. The gospel is all about yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you wanna be my disciple, what must you do? You must deny yourself. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Evodia and Sintiki, if they were denying themselves and taking up their cross and following Jesus, they wouldn't be having this fight, and we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. But you see, this is the problem with all of us. We, we All of us have felt at times that we need to go for counseling for one thing or another. we got to solve this problem or that problem and, and have an understanding here, understanding, learn to understand each other, learn how to communicate, learn how to relate with one another. You know, there's, a, there's a, a quick way to solve your problem, folks, and that is simply be like Jesus. It's as plain and as simple as that. But please understand, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> we have to learn what it is to be like Jesus. And the thing that's going to motivate us is based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. Folks, this is the gospel. The gospel, the good news, is what Jesus Christ has done for us. The gospel is also our response to what Jesus Christ does for us. How do you live your life? Well, here's the thing, folks. You and I, we owe a debt to Christ that we can never repay. Everybody understands that? And Jesus Christ does not expecting or asking us to repay a debt. He wants us to be confident in what he has done on the cross. And he wants us to understand that it has, it's, it's nothing that we do that wins us favor with God. The only thing that you and I can do that will bring pleasure to God is put our faith in his son, the son that he sent because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So all he asks is that you and I be like him, that you and I deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. It's that simple. So remember last week, we talked about this. We said, uh, Paul, Paul reminds us, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. How many know that we are, in fact, citizens of heaven, that we are supposed to be looking for a heavenly homeland? Everybody remembers that? Because this world's not our home? Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news that is the gospel about Christ. Again, this one mind and purpose that we just read about is in fact the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a thing that binds our hearts together. And that should be the thing that causes us to come together in agreement. Now watch this, watch this. What happens when the gospel is not our common purpose. Fights break out. They break out all the time. Suddenly, Ebodeah and Syntyche, who were great helpers of the apostle Paul, helping to advance the gospel, suddenly now, they're not involved in advancing the gospel. Did you get that? What are they involved in? Advancing their own cause. You see, this is what it it boils down to. You're either advancing the gospel or you're advancing your own agenda. And I'm gonna tell you, again, this is not easy, but this is, in fact, simple to understand. You and I need to be a people, as Christians, we need to be a people who are committed to the advancement, not of our own agenda, but of the agenda of God. And what does God... What does God want? Well, for God to love the world. That's his agenda. He wants all people to know Jesus Christ and to what? To receive eternal life. But the minute you and I forget that is the minute now we start fighting for our rights, which is exactly what Eva Villa and Cynthia started to do. It's a cliche, folks, to say that the purpose of the church is worship. Because if you ask anybody that, that's what they're going to say. Rick Warren came out with an interesting book called The Purpose Driven Life. And of course, one of the purposes is going to church every Sunday to worship. But listen, it's very important to understand this. It's it's important to understand what worship is. Worship is not just standing up on Sunday and singing songs together. Because you could stay home and sing songs. In fact, you could light a, a, a campfire in your backyard and sing to your heart's delight. It's not just singing songs. You need to understand that the gospel of Christ is must be the center of everything. And if it is not the center of everything, if it's not the unifying purpose, if it's not the thing that makes us one, then it's not New Testament worship. Did you get that? When we come together on Sunday morning, we're singing about about what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're singing about the great and marvelous grace of God. We're singing about the fact that Jesus died on the cross to take away our sin. We're we're singing about the fact that God has sent us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us richly, to empower us, to go with us, to help us, to live the life that he's called us to live. We're here to sing about the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You see what I'm saying this morning? True New Testament worship has got to have the gospel at the very core of it, or it's just you're just singing songs. You may as well stay home and sing kumbaya in bed. <laughs> but we come together to celebrate and to focus on the lordship of Jesus Christ and what he did for us at the cross. Now, that, my friends, is New Testament worship. So, if we're gonna to attempt to, to live as Paul calls us to live, then we're gonna to have to keep in mind at the very core, the very center of our thinking. And at every level of the ministry in this church, it's gotta be the gospel. And that's why I broke it to you last week, I broke the news to you that we're adding a habit or two, and you're gonna be hearing more about it at the annual meeting, but, and I'm not even sure exactly of the wording yet, but the first habit, has got to be that we have the mind of Christ, that we are gospel-oriented people, that the gospel is at the core of what we believe and the way that we think. In fact, it's got to be the filter through which all our thinking and all our decisions are made. Does that make sense? It's Really, it's a worldview, if you want to put it like that. It's a gospel worldview, which is exactly what we find from Genesis to Revelation. The gospel, my friends, is not just a New Testament idea. The New Testament and the Old Testament support this gospel worldview. This is what makes us a people of one heart and one mind. And by the way, that's why we're seeing, we see splinters within the church. It's why we're seeing in North America, churches splitting all over the place, denomination splitting, because we have forgotten what is at the core. And you could say, well, Pastor Alan, are you really saying that that's the way I need to live in my personal life? 100%. Because the gospel is not just something that's proclaimed. It's something that is lived. Thank you, right? The gospel is something that's lived. You must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what it is to to live the gospel. And every couple that lives that way will not, will not, uh, will not have problems in their marriage. Any family that lives that way, there will be a family that, that stays together. It's life-changing. That's the power of the gospel. Folks, listen, <laughs> to put it simply, to be gospel-oriented is to be others-oriented. It's, you're always putting others first. In fact, that is the mark of the Christian. And this is what made Christians stand out in the early church and throughout the ages. Wherever you see that the church has got a strong witness, what you're going to see is that Christians are other-oriented. They're putting others first. They're preferring others above themselves. So Paul explains what the gospel looks like and how it's lived out practically. Here it is in verses 3 and 4. He says, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others is better than yourself. Like I could spend time now on each of these points but I don't have time to do it unfortunately. So this is something you can meditate this week. You can meditate on that, don't be selfish. See, in your family, if you don't be selfish, no fights. Don't try to impress others, don't be a show off, don't be a braggart. Some people, whenever you're with them, only will talk about themselves. I've been with people visiting for two hours. Don't ask one word about me. You've experienced that? Hey, what true true fellowship is, a fellowship that you love, the fellowship that you enjoy, the fellowship that hopefully you'll have in your small group starting next week, is that you are gonna be listening to one another and hearing each other's hearts and you're gonna be the only fight that you're gonna have is, no, no, you go first. No, no, you go first, right? That should be the only fight that anybody has. No, I wanna I want hear what you have to say. No, you, you get to have the, the last piece of pie. You get to have the last chicken wing. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Well, that is, that's powerful stuff. And then he says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. In verse five, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. The apostle Matthew, he reports towards the end of Jesus' ministry, a very ugly and competitive uh, time in, in the lives of the apostles. So they've been hanging out with Jesus now for, for two, almost three years now. Jesus is now preparing to go to the cross. He's just, uh, just weeks away. And uh, uh, just a terrible, terrible fight breaks out. A real ugly and competitive spirit develops among the apostles. And and here's what happened. Uh, James and John have a Jewish mother. Have you ever heard of a Jewish mother before? But Jewish mothers know how to promote their children like nobody else does. And so James and John obviously have had these in-depth conversations with their mother and... uh, And the long and the short of it is, is that they were trying to get Jesus to give each of her sons a privileged throne on either side of Jesus in his kingdom. Well, when the other 10 heard this, they were outraged. They were livid, furious. They couldn't believe that James and John would go around them, get their mother the big sucks, Get the mother in there to speak on their behalf to give them the thrones on other side of Jesus' throne. Harsh words and angry gestures were exchanged among the twelve. Tempers flared, you can imagine it. And Jesus called them together. Okay, guys, come on. Come here. I gotta tell you something. In Matthew 20, 25, 28. Is what Jesus said to the boys. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them, and their high officials, they exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did, not coming to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John have been slapped down. I think in a rather kind way, but they were definitely slapped down. But you folks, what you need to see, it's not just James and John that have got the problem. The other 10 have got a problem too. They were just as ambitious and just as self-centered as the two were. This, the fact is, is that James and John were just smarter than the other ones. They got to Jesus first. But self-centered, wow. So you understand now what Jesus is saying, right? Got it? Get it? Well, now watch this. Just a few days later, when the apostles arrive in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they're at it again. They're still going at each other's throats. So Peter and John had, had secured a room for Passover at Jesus' direction, but they... They forgot to get somebody to do the foot washing. Understand that we, they didn't have shoes like us. They didn't have vehicles like us. After being out on a dusty, dusty road in 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 Galilee or in Jerusalem, their feet were dirty, and the rule is you have to you got to you gotta clean your feet before you go to eat. Never mind just your hands. Well, the wa- the. The apostles, they wander into the room, dirty feet and all. They sit down, and no one would humble himself to perform the humble task. They're at it again. Apparently, Jesus' teaching of just a few days earlier had absolutely no effect on them. Isn't that often the way it is with us? We come to church, we hear the message, hallelujah, praise the Lord, brother, you're completing my sentences for me. You seem to understand it, you get it, you could preach a sermon, you go out the door and you forget all about it. It's exactly what happened here. No one would volunteer for the lowly task of washing anyone's feet, not even their own feet. How human this is of them and how human it is of us, isn't it? Isn't that why fights break out in the house? Not my turn. It's your turn. Your turn to take out. The, your turn to wash the dishes. Your turn to empty the dishwasher. Your turn to sweep the floor. Your turn to clean the bathroom. And on and on it goes. Suddenly, Jesus rises to his feet, and he takes a towel and he wraps it around his body in the same manner as a slave would. Pours water into a basin. I know you can hear a pin drop in the room. Everyone's dead silent. What is going on? What is our master doing? (laughs) It's freaking them out. You hear the water pouring into the basin. And then Jesus very slowly gets down on on his knees and he moves around the circle systematically, washing each disciple's outstretched feet, wiping them with a towel. It was a breathtaking moment. The incarnate son of God has dressed like a slave and on his knees is washing the feet of his prideful, arrogant servants. His prideful, arrogant creatures, he created them and now here he is serving them. Even the Jewish Midrash, that's a Jewish commentary, taught that no Hebrew, not even a slave, could be commanded to wash feet. And here's Jesus taking the very lowest of the lowest position. If you've got fights in your marriage, you've got fights in your family, you've got fights at work, you've got fights in the church, you've fights in your ministry, it's only because you're, somebody is not acting like Jesus. Somebody doesn't have the attitude of Christ so often we, are set, we set each other off. And the fact is, is that so often it's both parties involved. And then you have stupid things happening, like getting angry because your piece of ham is bigger than my piece of ham. Just remember that, let that be, let that be code in your family. Is this about the ham? Just say that you'll know. You, everybody will know. Oh yeah, that's right. Ha, ha, ha! I'm so stupid. Give me the small piece. <laughs> well, John, John 13:14 repeats that Jesus said, "If I then your Lord and your Teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should follow, and do just as I have done to you." Look, this is gospel living. This is a life that's been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a life of somebody who recognizes that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. So Paul points not to himself, but to Jesus Christ, who is the supreme example of what it means to have a humble attitude. I want to read to you a poem now. It's, it's not Shakespeare, so don't panic. It's verses 6 to 11. And by the way, many consider this to be the most exalted prose in the whole New Testament. One scholar likens this passage, chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, to the soaring language of a Bach cantata which is best understood, this person says, by being heard out to the end, that's from beginning to end, and then listened to again. Do you, by the way, do you know that Bach is, some consider him, and I consider him to be the greatest classical composer of all time. And at the end of every piece that, that Bach created, he put the, the letters, you remember me saying this a few weeks ago, SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Bach, as he was doing these cantatas, was doing it for the glory of God. He was serving God and serving his listeners and the worshipers that had come to church. This, this poem, some believe it was written right after Christ's death and resurrection. And so, thusly, it, it, it confirms our doctrine, our, 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 what we would call Christology, the doctrine of Christ, that he was God, 100% God and 100% man. So let's take a look. Some believe Paul heard the poem and included it here. We don't know for sure. But, but definitely they believe that this is, in fact, some of the very earliest writings after Christ's resurrection and ascension to the Father. So let's look at, at the first half of the, of the poem though he was God, and your Bible would say, though he was in the form of God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross." i tried to maintain the, the poetic structure. Let me just point out something before I read to you the second half of that poem. That word, to cling to. In your Bible, might say it might say something to be grasped. The word, harpagnon, means to snatch or to pillage. You might say, to take advantage of, what, what the poet is saying here is Jesus Christ, even though he was God, he did not take advantage of his Godness. He did, not, he did not pillage it. In other words, he didn't take advantage of it. In one of the apocryphal gospels, it talks about how Jesus, when he was a little boy, he was playing in the, in the mud, And he formed some doves out of the mud and he breathed life into them and they flew away. Uh, We recognize this as as, as, as nonsense. Why? I mean, we live in a day and age where we all know about Marvel Comics and we all know know about the superpowers. and, And so some people are tempted to think of Jesus that way. I want you to know something. The only time that Jesus ever used his divine power was for the purpose of revealing God and to fulfill scripture. That was it. I like what Tony Campola said. Jesus Christ, if he wanted to, he could have called on the legions of heaven to come down with their semi-automatics and finish off the Romans once and for all. But that's not what Jesus did. He did not pillage the divine powers. He did not snatch at it, cling to it, or grasp it, or take advantage of it. Why? Because he had to come and be a man. He had to suffer with us. He had to identify with us. Beautiful poem. So here's Jesus, the incarnate son of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. God himself, he comes to us. In verse seven, it says he gave up his divine privileges. And your Bible might say he emptied himself of his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave. You know, uh, back some years ago, there was what, what was called the kenosis theory. Liberal th- uh, scholars and theologians, they came up with this idea that, that Jesus emptied himself of his divine power so that he was in fact not God. It was utter nonsense. Of course he's God. He's 100% God and he's 100% man. He could not have saved us if he was not God. And you know, it's interesting to me how many pastors still still preach that Jesus was not God. In fact, we've got a major church or two in the city that regularly preaches the gospel of a Christ who has emptied himself to the point of having no divine power. Well, every Bible scholar, liberal and conservative, are in are in agreement that that absolutely cannot be interpreted that way. Hermeneutically speaking, it's not possible to come to that conclusion. No, what is the poet saying here? Is that Jesus Christ? He gave it up freely, that divine power and privilege to be human like you and me, to suffer temptation like you and me. How many know that? When you go to God in prayer and you have suffered your temptation and you and you failed, and you've fallen short. You come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And and the, the book of Hebrews tells us that we have a Savior, a high priest, who is familiar with our suffering. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows the struggle that you and I are going through. We have a sympathetic Savior who knows us, who understands our humanness. I don't know about you, but that just sends chills up and down my arms and legs. This is the Savior that I pray to, the Savior who is acquainted with my suffering, with my struggle, with my temptation. And that's the, that's the Savior that you're praying to, one who is acquainted with all your grief and all your pain. And so when he appears in human form, I mean, what could be more vulnerable than a little baby? Born to, to poor a poor carpenter, Poor builder. A young girl. Not even near her mother. She's in a, in another town, away from home, away from Nazareth, down in in Bethlehem, and not even in a house. He's born in a in a manger, in the, in a trough where you feed animals. The lowly, humble Jesus, the King of the Universe, becomes a humble, humble human being like you and me, able to relate to anybody, in the poorest nation on earth. He humbled himself in obedience to God and then died a criminal's death on a cross. Do you want to know something? We talk about the cross and we we we, we glory in the cross, don't we? But I'm going to tell you, in Jesus' day, in the day of the apostles, the cross was equivalent to, uh, to a, a swear word, to a profanity. You just didn't talk about it. You never ever would you talk about a cross or, or, or crucifixion in polite company. You just, you just didn't do that. It was as, as, as horrible, as horrifying as somebody sitting at your dinner table using the F word. Uh, you need to understand that. And today we wear crosses around our necks and we got them on our walls, we got them everywhere. But understand, that the cross of Jesus Christ and the way he died was scandalous, horrible scandal. You know, (laughs) you talk about words like humility and lowliness. You know, again, this is something that we don't understand because we're 2,000 years after Christ. But at the time when Jesus was walking the earth, the words humility and lowliness, they're rarely used. This is not used. In Greek society, in fact, these words, humility and lowliness, they they were derogatory terms. They were used in a derogatory sense of of, of servile weakness or groveling or or shameful lowliness. And yet that's what Jesus takes upon himself. Think about that. And so in your family, when your fight breaks out and you're reminded that you're supposed to be like Christ, and you need to become lowly and humble. Just think, Jesus did it. If Jesus can do it, if Jesus would do it, we can do it. Thanks, Ray. This is, this is Christianity 101. This is why churches split. This is why families split. Conceit has definitely been more in vogue over the centuries. You know, Rousseau. so a great French thinker, author, writer, Renaissance man. He said this, he says, I rejoice in myself. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? That's not how I was raised. Rousseau, I rejoice in myself. My comforts lie in my self-esteem. If there were a single enlightened government in Europe, it would have erected statues to me. Can you imagine saying something like that? Oh, yes, the wonderful Rousseau. Oscar Wilde, when crossing the border, was asked uh, if he was going through, through customs. he was asked if he had anything to declare, and all he said was, yes, my genius. He <laughs> 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 I have to declare my genius, my high IQ. I'm so brilliant. I'm going across the border. They should have slapped tariffs on the dude, but anyway. This is who we are, folks. This is human nature. Folks, listen, the rule for the gospel-oriented church has got to be humility. It's got to be this notion that others are greater than me. And now, folks, this is not faking it, but it's a genuine understanding that the other person has been created in God's image and has great value and worth. And I will therefore count that person as more significant than myself. Now, listen, Paul, Paul was not a captive to this neo-pagan thinking, which says, I gotta love myself and I, I can't love others until I love myself. Hey, Here's the rule of thumb. If it ain't in the Bible, you probably shouldn't be talking like that. Have you heard that? I gotta, if, I, if I can't love myself, how can I possibly love others? This is not biblical. In fact, the Bible says our biggest problem is that we love ourselves too much. The fact is, we just don't understand that. Because you feel a sense of low self-esteem, you imagine that it's because you don't love yourself. No, the problem is not that you have low self-esteem. The problem is, is that you feel guilt and shame because of your sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that that can be washed away, and your esteem now is in Christ and not in yourself. Do you get that? This notion, this idea that i got to love myself in order to love others, this is pagan thinking. This is not biblical at all. Paul understood. He understood his worth. He understood that God loved him so much and had such worth that he sent his own son to die for him. Think about that, people. You are are a person of great worth and a great value to God because first of all, you created an image of God and then God sent his son to redeem you. Your problem is not that you don't love yourself enough. The problem is that you don't love God enough and you don't love others enough. That's where the split comes in. That's where the problems come in. Let's leave this self-esteem nonsense at the door. Read Galatians 2.20 or or Romans 8.32, and you'll get a clear idea of the great love that God has for you and your great worth and value. No, folks, listen. What we need to do is we need to learn to be like Jesus. And so here's what Paul says. Or This is the rest of the poem. Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor. And gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in in heaven and on earth and underneath the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the Savior that you serve. This is the Savior that you love. This is the Savior that you're imitating, that you want to emulate. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mr. Putin? Mr. Biden? Mr. Trudeau. Mr. Zilke. <laughs> Mr. Maurer? Mr. O'Neill? This is what I'm You sit in the front, I can see you. Miss <laughs> Heather. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because Jesus Christ took that lowly position. He humbled himself and died on the cross for your sins and mine. But he didn't just die for us. He didn't come to just die for us. He came to live for us. You've got to remember that. That's a part that evangelicals forget all about. We preach the gospel we forget that that's part of the gospel. He's taught us how to live. And how must we live? We must deny ourselves, take up our cross every day and follow Jesus. How many know that being a Christian is not something that just happens on Sunday, although it does for some of you. But let me remind you that this is a daily a daily taking up of your cross, a daily denying yourself, a daily putting others first. Would you stop me, please? Father, we thank you this morning for your presence here. God, when we think of who we are, we think of the evil that we have committed over our lifetime. We think of how we have failed not just in big things, but in little things, the way we've lost our temper, the way that we've been self-centered, the way we have caused splits and division, the way that we have been angry just because of self-centeredness. God, we don't know how you could love us, but you do. So God, we pray this morning that by your spirit, you would enable us to follow in the steps of Christ, that we would follow Christ's example, even as he said. He said, I've set for you an example. God, help us, we pray, by your spirit to live this way because we can't live it on our own. We don't have that ability. God, we are too, we admit it, we confess it. We are too self-centered. We think far too highly of ourselves. So we're praying now in Jesus' name that you cause us to be a humble people, a godly people, a people who are surrendered and committed to you, that are prepared to bring glory to your name. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you now, thanking you in Jesus' name, that the Spirit of God is at work in us, enabling us to live as Christ lived. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said it? Tell the person beside you, go be like Jesus.